this is a podcast called A Badge Well Worn, and it's based on a book by the same name. We will be featuring the men and women who will tell their stories about actual cases that they were involved in some way, possibly as a police officer, a prosecutor, a witness, or even a victim. Our goal is to bring reality to you. Some of these stories were discussed in my book, A Badge Well Worn, which is available on Amazon. Hello. Welcome back to my uh, older listeners and uh, to my new listeners. Welcome. Today I wanted to talk about a chapter in my book, A Badge Well Worn. Um, The title of the chapter is Rhonda. This is not a her true name, but uh, it's a name we're going to use for this discussion and uh, the name that I used in the book. I'm going to uh, apologize in advance. I'm going to read to you from verbatim from my book on this chapter. So I give you some a baseline of what we're going to talk about in this case. Here we go. Rhonda Russi was almost home at her parents' residence. She was an elementary school teacher and had a part-time job as a car salesperson at a new car dealership. The rear seat of her car was filled with balloons, and she had just been using the balloons for a promotion at the dealership. The view behind her in the vehicle was obstructed by the balloons. On top of that, it was raining fairly hard. Traffic was light, probably because it was late, around 11 p.m. or later. She pulled into her driveway, and as she opened the car door, she was surprised to see two young black youths approaching her. Both were carrying handguns. The youths ordered Rhonda into their vehicle, which was on the road parked behind her car. The pair drove Rhonda to a remote area of the city, and the driver forced her to undress, and he raped her. After that, the other subject took his turn. They rummaged through her purse and removed any cash that she had. She feared that she was going to be executed after the rapes. She asked if she could sit between the two in the front seat and acted friendly, as they were still brandishing the handguns. She convinced them to drive her back to her car, and they did so. Returning to her parents' home, she told them that she had been abducted and raped, and the police were called. A patrol officer completed a crime scene report of the incident. Meanwhile, they notified the detective bureau and I was assigned to the case. I responded to the parents' home. After talking to the officer that took the report, I then asked that Rhonda go to the hospital and get examined. This included a rape kit. I told her I would be back in touch with her the following day to get a detailed statement. Rhonda emphasized that she was convinced that the two youths were going to kill her after they had raped her. It was at this point that she attempted to allay any thoughts they may have had about her reporting the incident to the police. She said she asked to sit up front between the two of them. The purpose was she thought that they would be reluctant to shoot her if she sat between them. She said she tried to keep the conversation cordial and ultimately convinced them to take her back to her car. Although I didn't express my own opinion on how she handled that, it probably saved her life. The next morning, I returned to Rhonda's 
parents' house and was greeted by her father. He was an older man and appeared quite upset about the incident. After I talked to him for a few minutes and explaining the processes we would be going through, he looked me square in the eyes and he said, I want you to catch the people that did this to my daughter. I promised him I would do my best. Rhonda's statement detailed the abduction and ran through the interaction of the rape. She emphasized that the two, two youths were very young, possibly 15 or 16 years of age. They had been using a stolen station wagon. A few things need to be established in a rape case that I needed to run down in her statement. First, the young men who did this were armed with handguns, and she feared for her life. Second, the rape was forcible and against her will and at gunpoint. Finally, I had to know if she had sexual intercourse prior to the abduction. This information is important for instances where vaginal smears showed the presence of semen, which can be presumed to be from that of the suspects. She denied any sexual activity prior to the abduction. I have been trained in creating likenesses of a sub suspect from witnesses using a kit that can take to get an approximate likeness of the suspects. In this case, <clears throat> I prepared the identikit features and called in a police artist who went to work and with Rhonda's help came up with two portraits. Rhonda was satisfied with the likeness of the two rapists. From there, I distributed the photographs to various police agencies and newspaper publications. There have been a rash of these kind of abductions and rapes involving similarly described young men. I dropped off a color version at the county juvenile detention facility. All juvenile criminal cases use this facility to house those involved in serious crimes, either pending trial or to serve out a sentence by the juvenile court. The next day, I received a call from the director of the juvenile center. She had reviewed the composite drawing and said that these individuals were pictures of Willie Jones and Marcus Williams. There was no doubt about it in her opinion. Going through the prosecuting attorney, arrangements were made to schedule a juvenile court hearing at which both suspects and their parents would need to be present. I brought Rhonda to this hearing where she positively identified both youths as her attackers. The youths were charged with kidnapping and rape and robbery, uh, and that was in adult court. And they had taken all of her cash was the reason for the robbery charge. These juvenile court charges were later transferred to an adult criminal court. At trial, both youths were convicted by a diverse jury. In spite of later appeals and hearings, the convictions were confirmed. The sentences were later reduced from life for kidnapping to a lesser amount of time due to the tender age of the defendants and the change in the kidnapping statute. Two more predators were off the street between the time of the incident and the date of the two youths were arrested. Although we, he would never know that the two youths were identified, I was comfortable that my promise had been kept. I've often thought of how I would have liked to have looked Rhonda's father in the eye and say, we got him. I wanted to talk a little bit about the trial and uh, some of the activities that took place after the trial. 
shortly after the first trial, they, they filed for a new trial based on errors and omissions in the, uh, in the county court case. And uh, the judge denied it. An appeal was filed with the Supreme Court of Indiana, and the matter was heard on April 14, 1982. In this appeal, they cited 10 reasons that the case should be overturned or reviewed. I'll read these to you. One, whether the defendants were denied the effective assistance of counsel by virtue of being represented by the same attorney. Two, whether the defendants were denied their right to a speedy trial. Three, whether the defendants were denied a fair trial because of prosecutorial misconduct. Four, whether the trial court erred in denying a motion for a new trial premised upon a claim of newly discovered evidence. Five, whether the trial court erred in refusing to admit to the results of a polygraph examination at the hearing upon a motion to correct errors. Six, whether the trial court erred in refusing to grant immunity to two witnesses at the hearing upon motion to correct errors. Seven, whether the evidence is sufficient to sustain the convictions. Eight, whether the trial court erred in refusing the defendant's tendered instruction upon the defense misidentification. Nine, whether the court trial, I'm sorry, nine, whether the trial court erred in denying defendant's motion to correct errors with asserted, which asserted that the prosecutor used unconstitutionally obtained identification evidence and inadmissible hearsay to convict the defendants. Ten, whether the defendants were denied the effective assistance of counsel. In the appeal, um, which was laid out quite in detail, the court um, denied any appeal and upheld the conviction. I'm going to get back to that. There's an important piece of that I want to read to you. On December 2nd, 1983, the defendants filed an appeal with the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit, citing the same 10 um, reasons requesting that the court uh, overturn these convictions. Actually, the court issued a writ of habeas corpus and overturned one item of the ten, list of 10 regarding the um, issue of the attorney having a conflict of interest. So on we went to another appeal to the U.S. District Court of Northern District of Indiana, which was heard on March 28th. 1983. In this, the court overturned the lower court and sustained the convictions of the uh, trial court. One of the important issues in this case that become a little bit muddled early on was when the investigating officer, a patrol officer, arrived to take the initial report. He questioned the, the victim 
about the identity of the two males involved in the rape. The victim told the officer that the suspects were very young, possibly 15 or 16 years old and, and small, probably less than five foot five or five foot six, that they were very young. The officer in his report took it on his own accord to indicate that the suspects were between 17 and 20 and somewhere between five foot six or seven and five foot nine. I asked the officer after I had talked to the victim and she emphatically stated that that's not what she told the officer, that she told the officer, as I just stated, that they were much younger and much shorter than that. Why the officer had uh, indicated in his report that they were older and taller. The officer said he didn't think it would be possible for a person that young and that small to commit such a heinous crime as was done to our victim. So this caused a, a lot of consternation later in court when the victim was called upon and challenged about the misidentification of the age and the height physical description of the suspects. But I think the Oshevsky, the prosecuting attorney, did a remarkable job of overcoming some of these, these issues like this. Another thing that went a little bit unnoticed was the victim had participated in the preparation of the composite drawing. She was a quite a good artist and was able to aid the professional artist in making these composites appear almost lifelike portraits. They added color, shading, and uh, a lot of context to these, these portraits that made them uh, extremely accurate and, and identifiable. When I turned these photographs over to the staff at the Lake County Juvenile Detention Center. It didn't take them more than a few minutes to recognize the two men, young men, as uh, Cornelius Harper and Keith Dean, who had been frequent residents at the juvenile facility and were known to be inseparable companions. This was based on uh, their knowledge of their association with each other and the likelihood of two subjects in one crime with a composite that matched so closely that it was unlikely that there was an error. That's how I got photographs from the facility to, to demonstrate in a photo lineup to the victim who immediately identified the two. It's also important for me to tell you that there was a hearing held at juvenile court before these youths were transferred over to adult court. And at the hearing, I was subpoenaed along with the victim to attend the hearing in juvenile court. Both accused subjects appeared with one of their guardians or parents at the, at the hearing. And there was one other male subject who looked like one of the photographs 
that we had shown to our victim, the older brother of Cornelius Harper, Larry Harper. Larry Harper would later come forward after this trial and say that it was him and another man that had sex with our victim and it was consensual. They signed affidavits indicating to the court that it couldn't have been the two young men that were convicted in court because they're the ones that did it. And it wasn't really a rape. It was, uh, I think they said uh, they met this woman and she wanted to have sex with them. So they went, went out and had sex. It was consensual. There's one other thing. They brought into uh, contention a polygraph test that they issued to both young men that uh, said they committed the crime. Polygraph exams were really inconclusive, according to the court records, but uh, the defense attorneys attempted to get them into evidence to show that they were vindicated. They would vindicate the, uh, the two accused boys and implicate the two young men that had stepped forward to say that they're the ones that did this. Uh, I'm going to read to you a section of the appeal. And this was the, uh, the first appeal wherein the court was questioning the two attorneys to make a determination on the thoroughness of their preparation for trial after the allegations that they were basically, they didn't get a good uh, representation from their attorneys. Uh, one of the attorneys was named, uh, I think, Michael Katz, K-A-T-Z. He also related his pretrial investigations, which consumed six and one half pages of narrative testimony. His preparation included interviewing the defendants and the witnesses and administration of a polygraph examination to defendants on January 6, 1978. Based on the results of the polygraph, I interviewed both of them. This is Doherty talking now. I told them both at the time that based on the polygraph results, it's my feeling, number one, that either they had committed the offense or they knew who did it. I believe that the results as to one of the defendants was that he was not telling the truth in his answers to certain questions posed to him. With the other defendant, the answers were inconclusive. Both defendants professed their innocence and indicated they did not know who committed the crime with which they had been charged. Mr. Doherty corroborated Mr. Katz's testimony and strategy and related the following. Cornelius Harper asked Mr. Katz and myself if the state of Indiana would have a case against them if something happened to the complainant, if she did not show up at court. What, if anything, did you do, Mr. Katz? Reply, I indicated that she is the primary witness in a case and that the state's case was based upon her testimony, at which point Cornelius Harper and, Corne and Keith Dean remained silent. Cornelius Harper indicated that he would have his people, either he used the word, I believe, do something to her at that point. 
I told him to be quiet. I did not want to hear any further conversation about what the defendants or their family might do to the complaining witness. I indicated that it would be totally wrong for them to have anything done because I am an officer of the court and I had a duty to contact Mr. Katz and I had a duty to contact the judge, which Mr. Katz did and I, and recited that portion of the testimony. So we have here a case where the two young men who are telling anyone who would listen to them in the appeals that they are innocent and that someone else did did this, and at the same time, they're plotting in front of their own attorney to uh, take out the witness or have, have it taken care of so that she would not be able to uh, appear in court, testify against them. So... This case is one of those cases that seemingly never goes away, but uh, they serve their time and they are presently both out of prison. Uh, one is a, runs his own business. I'm not going to get into what he does. He runs his own business and apparently he has a hard time conducting business in uh, government facilities and has petitioned uh, the court to review his conviction and um, possibly review any potential DNA evidence that may exist left over from the trial. Um, I was contacted some months ago and asked uh, my recollection on what happened to the physical evidence from the scene. And of course, it was admitted as evidence in the trial. And uh, quite frankly, I don't know what the court does with evidence after they're done with it. Uh, I'm not aware of any chain of custody that exists where they would return it to a laboratory for storage. So I think that case pretty much just uh, went away. But I did hit one, one, have one comment. The attorney that was presenting the case informed me that he was personally convinced that these young men did not commit the crime that there had been a misidentification and that uh, he felt pretty good about trying to get them uh, absolved from the responsibility of, of doing this rape. I, on the other hand, am convinced to the contrary that these are the guys that did it. The witness was absolutely, totally convinced when she made her identification that these were the guys that did it even in spite of the fact that one of the persons that stepped forward was in the courtroom when they made their initial courtroom identification, and she eliminated him as being involved in this. I appreciate you uh, listening in. One of the things that uh, I wanted to let you know is this is going to tie into my next podcast. When we talk about women and uh, carrying firearms and being aware of their safety uh, when they're out alone, uh, we're going to have Scott Zappolo back, and I would invite you to listen on our next podcast. I think you're going to find it very informative and um, hopefully give you some tips that will keep you safe so we can keep you back. In the meantime, I look forward to talking to you again, and thank you. You've been listening to an episode of A Badge Well-Worn. My hope is that we have provided you with a glimpse of reality in the world of criminal investigations through the eyes of the people involved. 
If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on future podcasts, please let me know by contacting me at my website at jem-books.com.